This is the 44th episode of the Sharp End Podcast. My name is Ashley, and I'm your creator and hostess of the show. Guess what? Today, September 1st, I am launching a 15-day campaign to sell only 100 limited edition Sharp End t-shirts. I have men and women cuts available, and for those who love option, you can also choose from five different lovely colors. That's right. Only 100 shirts are available. So if you listen to this show and want to support me, please buy a shirt and wear it around to all your climbing or hiking or biking adventures. Wear it out. Wear it so much you can't wear it anymore. Buy one for a friend. Last month, over 8,000 people listened to this podcast the day it dropped. And if 8,000 people bought a $30 shirt to support me, I could quit my three day jobs and only podcast for the rest of my life. But that's not going to happen because I only have 100 shirts to sell. So get yours today because I'm hoping they'll sell out by tomorrow. You can find the link to get your shirt on the Sharpen Instagram page right under the logo in the description. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammoot. Protecting you while protecting the environment. Mammoot is not only focused on integrating leading safety technology into every product so that you can confidently push your boundaries, but also committed to continuing to preserve what is worth preserving and to improve what is not yet perfect. This month, we are still highlighting Mammoot's Wall Rider MIPS helmet, a pioneer among its peers, the first climbing helmet featuring the patented MIPS technology. The Wall Rider MIPS offers maximum safety and protection from impact caused by tumbling rocks or falls. Last month's giveaway was a hit, and Mammoot has graciously donated another Wall Rider helmet to a lucky listener. That's the perk of having amazing sponsors like Mammoot. The give my listeners things to stoke them out and make them safe while doing rad things. So stay tuned to the very end of this podcast to find out how you can enter. Thank you to the Colorado Hourbound School and Sunto for the additional support. This episode takes place on Mount Defiance in Oregon. And this incident happened February of 2019 this year. Her name is Leslie. And Leslie thought she was prepared for a hike that she felt confident doing. She even made a time control plan. And I'll have Leslie tell you the rest of the story and what went wrong. Enjoy. My name's Leslie Derpiza. I'm 42 years old. Um, I'm a family practice physician um, in Silverton, Oregon. I have my clinical practice in Salem, Oregon, and then I do um, deliveries at Silverton Hospital. I'm married to another family practice physician. Um, We met in medical school and then couples matched for residency and we have three kids together ages six nine and eleven fun yes <laughs> yes um so tell me what happened what what's the story you have for us so uh few years ago i really got into hiking camping backpacking and then more recently have been getting into mountaineering Um, you know, living in the Pacific Northwest, we're surrounded by all of these awesome mountains um, and volcanoes and, you know, that we all have dreams of summiting. Uh, So more recently, I got involved with the Chemeketans, which is a outdoor club here in Salem, Oregon, and more specifically with the, the climbing group. So I'd gone through climb school last year, and then just, you know, had all these plans of um, summiting all the peaks around us. So I started training 
Um, and my plan for this day when this happened, um, my plan was to go up Mount Defiance Trail um, and down Starvation Ridge. And this is a really common uh, mountaineering training hike kind of early in the season. It's 12 miles and about 5,000 foot elevation gain. So kind of comparable to a lot of the mountains around here. People will use it as a training hike for Mount Hood and Adams and St. Helens and all the ones around here. So um, having a busy schedule and, you know, being a doctor and a mom, I typically will pick days and locations where I know there aren't going to be a ton of people. You know, I do it to clear my head and enjoy the solitude. So this day I picked Super Bowl Sunday. Like what could be more perfect? Everybody's going to be at home watching the game. And, you know, I'm pretty much guaranteed to be out there. Was, um, that, was, this, was this this year? This was, yes, this February, February 3rd. Yeah. So um, I knew, you know, I in, in planning these hikes, I'm always looking at the weather studying the maps, like being familiar with the topography and the, you know, the mileage and, you know, different things that might come up. So I knew that weather was coming in later in the afternoon, there was supposed to be some snow, but I started at 8am and I timed it out, gave myself an hour per thousand foot of elevation gain, which is typically what it takes me. Um, and then I gave my husband a timeline. This is where I'm going to be. This is what time you should expect me back. Uh, so, and I know this hike is underneath a communication tower and in the Columbia River Gorge. If you're close enough to the interstate, you know, you'll typically have cell service. So um, I went up there, started at 8 a.m. And the way up was pretty straightforward. I ended up actually making excellent time and was an hour ahead of schedule. And there was only one other, there was like two other people that I saw there. I saw them at the trailhead and I kind of asked them, you know, what they thought we would expect as far as snow depth, if they were going to bring snowshoes. And, you know, we had a short conversation and um, decided to leave the snowshoes behind, brought the micro spikes um, and then just set off. Um, I was a little bit ahead of them. And uh, instead of it taking me, you know, five hours to get up to the top. It only took me four. And even with post holing and some route finding, I was like, man, I'm doing great. I've got this extra hour. <laughs> so was this, was the trail completely covered with snow? Um, no, there, there was probably for the first two, 3000 feet. There was, it was pretty much bare trail. And then really? we start to get like right. a dusting, Dusting of snow, and then up at the higher elevation, for sure, there was a bunch of snow. I mean, I was post holding to my knees. Um, yeah. So I got up to the summit, started working my way down. So my plan was up Mount Defiance Trail, and then turn this into a loop, and then go down Starvation Ridge. So I'm an hour ahead of schedule, and me just I I love to explore, and I love Alpine Lakes. Like, I've got this time to kill. I think I'm going to go check out this lake, um, Warren Lake, that's right past the summit. It wasn't in my original plan. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, looking back, of course, you should have stuck to my plan. But, you know, I had some time to kill. So I went out there, made it to the lake without any trouble. It was pretty, you know, covered in snow, not too much to see. So I started um, hiking out of that area. 
and the hike in and out of that lake, they run parallel to each other. So as I'm going on the way out, the trail is just completely blown out. I mean, there's just debris all over it. I can tell nobody's been out there. Um, I'm using, I was using Gaia on my phone and I felt like I was following it pretty well, but I get to this area where there's just a ton of debris. There's like a boulder field in front of me. There's a ravine like down um, below that boulder field. I'm like, this can't be right. So I, I crossed it, crossed the ravine and the boulder field thinking I could hook back up with the trail. And it just still looked super sketch. And I'm like, no, this is crazy. I need to just backtrack. So in my process of backtracking, the terrain was just really, really slick and covered in moss and I slipped and and I slipped and I started sliding down this embankment towards the ravine and I'm trying how, to like how far is the ravine from you you know I mean it was probably you know when I think back to it it was probably between a 30 and 40 foot like slide and I'm trying to like grab onto things to catch my you know, to catch myself. And I just, I mean, it was just super slick. I couldn't. And then it was long enough to register that I was falling really far. And so I, I hit the edge of the um, embankment and then just start falling straight down into the ravine. And I landed on my right foot with my toes pointed. And so I, you know, I, I finally like get all the way down. I, I, the impact, you know, stops me. I'm sitting pretty much in the riverbed and I like stop for a second and try to, you know, figure out where exactly I'm hurt and I can't bear weight on my right foot like this, you know, like this is a, at least sprained. I tried to move it around a little bit and, um, after a couple minutes, I, I could bear weight. So I'm like this, Maybe this isn't as bad as I thought. And I'm sitting in this icy water and the ice from the river is pretty much keeping, you know, keeping my ankle cold enough to where it felt like it was icing it. I did find out later that my my ankle was broken, but at the time I figured it was just sprained because I could still still bear weight. So was the water moving? The water was moving. Uh-huh. Yeah. And like the side, the sides of the river were frozen, so or iced over. It was iced over, right? Really, just mossy and and slick. So after a while, I I figured I start looking around to see, you know, what are my options, right? So I, I look back up to where I've fallen from, and it's it looks impossible to climb up. So. I know that this river that I'm in is Warren Creek and that it eventually leads down to back down to the interstate. So I'm like, well, I'll just follow this for a little while. I'll follow the Creek for a little while. And then when I find a more appropriate area that I can climb out of this embankment, then I will. Did you have trekking right, poles? I lost one of the trekking poles on my way down. Like I lost a trekking pole. I lost my waterproof mittens and a water bottle during the fall. So, um, I had one still, I still had one trekking pole. So I start working my way down the, um, 
Creek and I get to, you know, a waterfall because it's all flowing. And this waterfall has a tree um, kind of going down it. And so I straddled the tree and I slid down it to get to the, you know, the end of the waterfall um, and just keep following this river. My feet are wet, you know, and then I eventually get to like another waterfall that does not have a tree to slide down. It's like, like don't have any choice, but to start um, climbing back up. So at that point I did, you know, climb up the embankment. Um, It was a really slow process because it's basically like rock climbing, but I'm using my, just hands to find tree roots that are strong enough to bear my weight. And I've got this bum ankle. So I, I finally, you know, I, it's, it's slow going, but I get up to where the slope isn't so steep. And I'm basically at the top of the, um, the top of the ravine again, and it's starting to get dark. And I know that I'm way off my time schedule. So I look at my phone and I see that my you know mom sent me a text, you know, what, what time are you coming home? And I believe this was probably about maybe 5.36 p.m., you know, that night. And I, I was supposed to be back at the trailhead by, by 4. So um, I send my mom, I'm able to send my mom a text out that I'm injured. You know, I, I think I sprained my ankle and I might need a rescue. I still haven't admitted to myself that I'm <laughs> in bad shape. I'm like, I can get myself out of this. You know, so um, I I know that I am on the side of the ravine, the same side that I came in on, like closer to Mount Defiance Trail than I am to Starvation Ridge. So my plan at this point, I'm going to work my way back to Mount Defiance Trail um, because I know that that trail will look more familiar to me and it'll be my best way, you know, best chance of getting back out to the to the trailhead. But it's, you know, I'm moving really slow. My ankle is, you know, just, you know, making things really slow. And now snow is starting to fall. And um, I hiked in the dark for a little while. But I was like, this is, you know, I need to just hunker down for the night. I think that's the smartest thing to do. I can't really see my way around this um, rough terrain. So what I did is I found a shrub that, kind of was shaped like a canopy. And I looked, you know, I could see underneath that the ground was pretty dry. Like I knew that it would keep the snow off of me. So I wedged myself down under there, under the shrub and, you know, curled into a ball, just kind of the the tightest I could. My hands were wet. All I just had was um, glove liners. So I took those off and I wrung them out and I stuck them into, you know, the inside of my puffy to to keep them warm and hopefully dry them out a little bit. I had another spare hat and I wrapped my hands in my hat because my hands were freezing. A um, couple other things I did to try and stay warm is, you know, my, my feet were wet. I knew that my ankle was in bad shape, but I knew not to take my boot off because if the swelling got bad with the, with the boot off, it'd be impossible to get the boot back on. So I just kind of kept wiggling my toes to make sure the circulation was going. I um, wedged some rocks underneath my feet so that I wouldn't slide. Everything on this, in this terrain is on a slope. And so I was on a slope still and I stuck some rocks underneath my feet so I wouldn't slide down. Um, I also pulled my, my shell up over my mouth to try and retain the heat from my exhaled breath. 
and I kept my pack on to keep my core warm, as warm as possible, and then laid in my in the left lateral position, recovery position to to help with blood flow. I mean, some things about being a doctor in this situation were definitely <laughs> helpful. I usually do all the tricks. <laughs> but, um, but also knowing the stages of hypothermia, <laughs> it was a little bit unnerving too, because I was, you know, I'd be shaking uncontrollably and then I'd stop shaking. I'm like, wait, why did I stop shaking? That's not good, <laughs> you know? But then I would check in with myself and like, no, my mentation is still intact. My pulse isn't like slowed down. You know, I still am with it. I, you know, I'm still able to make plans. And, but I did have some moments where I'm like, this is how people die. They get out here in the cold, off trail, you know, no um, kind of cell service to speak of because I was relying on my phone, but the temperatures basically froze the phone. And so it would only stay on for about 30 to 60 seconds at a time and then just shut off. So I was able to get that text out to my mom, but then after that, I really couldn't use it for anything. So that night, um, I could feel, you know, the temperature dropping, you know, as the hours passed. And I knew that I was, you know, I was drifting in and out of sleep. I was exhausted, obviously. I kept thinking about, man, my family is probably freaking out. And I was supposed to be at the hospital the next day performing surgery. So I knew that my partners, when I didn't show up at 7.30 to do this C-section in the morning, they were going to know where I was. You know, they were going to know something was wrong, too. Um, and I didn't know if anybody was coming for me. You know, I've never been in a search and rescue situation before. And so I knew the weather was bad. They didn't have a, an exact location on me. You know, I didn't actually ask for a rescue yet. So I didn't think that anybody would come. Um I did leave my headlamp on for a short while, but I didn't want to kill the battery. But just in case I was spotted, I, you know, I left it on for a little while. Did anybody um, know your, cause I know that you changed your plan once you were in the mountains. So did anybody know what your initial plan was? Yeah, my husband did. He knew I was, my plan was to go up Mount Defiance Trail and then down Starvation Ridge. Okay. So that's good. Um, so yeah. that at least if there was to be a surge, they they would know where to start at least. Right. And I did find out later that that couple that I had run into, I did run into them again around 1 p.m. after I had already summited and I was making my way to the lake. They were on their way up and they had come up Starvation Ridge. So they saw me. And that's what actually started the search. They got back to their car and saw my car was still there. And they thought, well, she should have been long gone by now, you know, because she was ahead of us. So they called it in is what I found out later. And they found out that they started a search around 8 PM that night. Um, But they were looking up by Warren Lake. You know, they, my last known location was past that summit towards the lake. And so that's where they started looking, but I was already, you know, halfway down the mountain already, um, working my way down that creek. So, you know, I, you know, that night I was drifting in and out of sleep. I eventually, you know, woke up and it was already daylight. And so I had planned to continue towards Mount Defiance Trail. I knew, you know, just recalling the map, I would, I needed to climb again about another 800 feet of you know, elevation gain to get back to that trail. 
So I did that and that was super slow too. I mean, cause my, my ankle was messed up and I'm having to, I'm not on trail bushwhacking basically, you know, over logs and boulder fields. And, um, you know, I finally do make it back to the trail. I can recognize it. I see it. I know I'm back on it. So I try to turn my phone on again, just to at least send out my, my location that I'm, I'm back on the trail. I figure if I stay on it, it's the best chance of somebody finding me. Um, so I see, as soon as I turn on my phone, I see a ton of notifications, just all these text messages coming through. A few of them are from search and rescue, but nothing that says, you know, we're coming for you. Just send us your location, send us your coordinates and your, your coordinates. And then my phone would shut off again. So, I mean, this is something else that I learned through this whole experience is that if a family member is lost and in a, you know, search and rescue situation, don't text them. <laughs> don't, you know, try and call them and text them because when I turned the phone on, I just had to wait for all these notifications to pass before I could even attempt to call out. And then the phone would just die. So I did find out later that when I was on the trail, they did ping my location. And, but still, I mean, I found out that 80 people were looking for me and I never heard any of them. You are loved, Leslie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was totally crazy. So I stay on Mount Defiance Trail as best I can. And then I get to another section where it just looks completely blown out. I mean, just now it's all covered in snow. There's tons of debris. um, And it just stops looking recognizable. And so I, you know, I contemplate staying put. Because I know when you're being looked for, it's best to stay in one location. But every time I would sta- stand still, the uncontrollable shivering would start again. I'm like, I can't do this. I have to keep moving to stay warm. Um, I had brought a little bit of extra food and water. So I rationed that out to last, you know, another day. Um, and, you know, weighing my options, I, again, have to get back into this gully Like, I know that this river, this creek leads back to the interstate. And if I can see the interstate, you know, I have a better chance of of making it back and being seen. And so when the trail stopped, you know, looking recognizable, like, I have no choice. I got to get back in this gully. So I just, I get, I did, I got back in the, in the creek and just started, you know, bushwhacking through that whole thing. And then just continued to do that until you know, late afternoon, I finally get to the end of it. And um, it ends in a waterfall, like most of these gorge hikes do, you know, Um, I turn my phone on again. And this time I decided to call my husband, like he hasn't heard my voice in over 36 hours, He needs to know that I'm alive. You know, later on, he's like, why didn't you call 911? Why did did you call? Why did you call me? I'm like, because I wanted you to know that I wasn't dead, <laughs> you know? So I call him and I, and I tell him like, I'm coming down this Creek. I can hear a waterfall. Um, and then the phone cuts off again. <laughs> Great. There is tons of rivers and creeks and waterfalls. And he doesn't know where I am. So um, I'm able to, I turn it on again and, you know, I try to find my location and it's, you know, I show them at Lancaster Falls. I'm like, okay, at least I know the name of this waterfall that I'm at. So I try and find my way down because this waterfall is surrounded by sheer cliffs on both sides. 
by looking on one side, you know, I don't see anything across the waterfall, you know, over where it's like reasonable to cross and look on the other side and I don't see anything. And I do that a couple times. I go back and forth trying to find a way down. And on my last look, um, I slipped again. I mean, this terrain is like super slippery and slick and I, and I feel myself sliding down this sheer cliff and I, but I see this tree kind of like in the, in the line of my fall. And so I just shift my weight so that I land in the tree to make it break my fall. So I land in this, with this tree down my midline. So I bonked my forehead. My nose was pretty smashed and, you know, I hit my mouth and kind of, you know, uh, grin area, just have this minor straddle injury and I'm hanging in this tree. Um, my nose is bleeding. You know, I check my teeth. My teeth haven't fallen out. And I kind of like star, saw stars for a second. Like I, I, the impact was, you know, pretty, pretty decent. But I'm, I know I can't hang in this tree forever. So I, I kind of look down below me and I see a ledge that is, you know, big enough to hold two people. So I very, very carefully work my way down out of the tree and onto the ledge. And so I'm sitting here on this ledge and I look around and I'm like, there's no way up or down. Like, I have no idea how I'm going to get out of this. I can see the interstate at this point, though. I can see the cars. And so for a while, I'm like flashing my headlamp. But I know, you know, the snow is starting to fall again. I'm like, they're not going to see me. So I'm like, all right, I am going to call 911 one more time. And this has to work. <laughs> this has to work. And I know that the, you know, cold is freezing my phone. And so I take my puffy coat and I put the phone inside my puffy coat and I just breathe warm air on it. Um, and I dial it again and I can't believe it. And it, and it goes through and I'm just like breathing on it, trying to keep it on. And um, I reach a dispatcher and she's like, where are you at? And I tell her, and she's like, this is the you've reached the wrong, the wrong location. I have to transfer you. I have to put you on hold. And I'm like, no, (laughs) (laughs) seriously. (laughs) But, um, but, but she transfers me and I can't believe it, but the phone stays on this time. And I think it's just for me, like breathing on it to try and keep it on. And, um, I'm finally able to give the right dispatcher my location. She's like, is this Leslie? I'm like, yes. She's like, there are a lot of people looking for you. Awesome. <laughs> so I tell her where I am and I, I tell her, I'm like, I am on the side of a cliff. I don't know how anybody's going to get me. I, this it's, it, I'm like, it's really bad. I don't know how you're going to get me. And she said, no, don't worry. We've got climbers out here. They know the terrain. Um, they know where you're at now. And then she pauses for a second. She's like, but they say it's going to probably be at least an hour and a half for them to get to you because of where you're at. Like, okay. She's like, just hang on tight. Um, you know, you probably find to turn your headlamp off, but maybe turn it back on in an hour and a half. So I'm just sitting on this ledge and it's getting dark again. And I'm like, man, if I might have to spend another night out here. And um, I'm trying to stay awake because by then I'm just, I'm exhausted and I'm going on. And cold. And cold. And I hardly have any food left. And the water that I have is so cold. Every time I drink it, I start shivering again. And so I know I'm dehydrated, not very sleepy. So I'm just patiently waiting. And then finally, at about 
an hour and a half, two hours after I make that phone call, I start seeing headlights, just like headlamps, just below me and above me and just like circling. And I could tell they're trying to figure out where I am. And I just start flashing my headlamp too. And then they finally see me, we're flashing back and forth and there's, you know, screaming hello. And, you know, I'm saying hello back, but the waterfalls behind me, it's super loud. And, uh, we can't really, we can't really have a full conversation, but they, I know that they know where I am. Um, and they just said, you know, they said, we're going to, we're going to get you. And then they all leave. <laughs> I got scared again, but I found out later that, that they just went to go get more rope. Like when they saw where I was, they're like, Oh no, we're going to need more rope, more belay stations. Um, so there, the plans changed a couple times. At first, they were going to um, climb down to be eye level with me where my ledge was and then try and traverse this cliff. But there was way too much between us, like um, just you know, dead trees. And it was just pretty sheer all the way over. And so instead, um, that climber decided to use where he was eye level with me, but, you know, with that cliff between us just as a spotter station to where he could um, figure out the best way to get me out of there. So what they finally ended up doing is one climber came down to me and, you know, down climbed and, and stood on that ledge with me. And I have never been so happy to see somebody in my life, <laughs> but he, you know, he, gave me, you know, warm apple cider and a bunch of snacks and made sure it was okay. And the first thing I asked for was some gloves because my gloves were just toast and my hands were so cold. But he gave me some warm gloves and, you know, when he and I decided I was like good to go and ready to start climbing out of there, he got me into a harness and we had to climb up in order to get out. So there were several belay stations and you know thankfully I've had some climbing experience so it didn't feel that weird but you know they had um, nine climbers total made up of the Hood River Crag Rats and the Air Force 304th Rescue Squadron and they had team leaders on each side of me and then another climber behind me just to make sure I didn't slip again but um I mean, I didn't know how far we climbed up, but I had heard in their report that it was another 400 feet of elevation gain to climb up. And then we rappelled back down. So on my ankle, it was much easier to rappel and go backwards than it was to, to, to move forward just the way it was, it was injured. But where I was at the top of that um, waterfall was only a mile or two from the trailhead. So I had almost made it down, but I had gotten myself <laughs> in a place that was just really impossible to, you know, to get out of. Um, it took, let's see, I got back to the trailhead at 1.35 a.m. And they spotted me at 7 p.m. So that was like almost a six, seven hour extraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you left to go hiking in the morning when? I left 8 a.m. on Sunday, and this was 1.35 a.m. on Tuesday when I got back to the trailhead. Wow. And 
man, I was not prepared for how big the story had gotten. I thought, I mean, and I think that these guys knew, but they're like, so do you want us to call your family? I'm like, no, I'll be fine. I'll drive myself home. <laughs> It'll be fine. But, you know, I get to the trailhead, of course, there's ambulances and my husband's there, my brother's there, and um, his partner, my cousin, you know, they're all there. Luckily, most of the media had gone away because um, I don't know that I would have been ready to talk to anybody about it right then. But one of the, uh, the chief medical officer of my clinic uh, was actually there. And I found out later that he is a mountaineer and had, you know, has a ton of climbing experience and he wanted to be there to make sure that I was okay. And because he knew I would probably refuse medical care, he wanted to make sure that I got checked out. So he came, you know, he came up to me, hugged me and he, he's like, so glad to see you. Here's the ambulance. <laughs> like, why don't you get in it? Yeah. So, so I went home and, and then that began the whole recovery process, which, you know, to me in a lot of ways has been um, a lot more trying than the actual ordeal. You know, um, that was, you know, 40 hours. And to me, it, I didn't really feel like there was a chance I might die until I was on that ledge. You know, I, I know that there is no way that I can get myself out of this. They're, you know, they have to come and get me. Um, but prior to that, you know, I I never felt like I was close to dying. I could see how it could easily easily happen when you're off trail and in the cold and you know, don't no tricks to stay warm or anything or ration food, or if you panic and are able to plan your way out of there, you know. But there's so many learning experiences from this ordeal. You know, I mean, number one, you know, not having my GPS tracker or my satellite, my spot satellite messenger, or having an extra charger for my phone, or a backup paper map and compass, you know, just stuff that I now take on pretty much all my day hikes. <laughs> um because yeah, this was supposed to be just eight hours, just in and out, and it turned into 40 hours. And I got super complacent. You know, prior to this, I was, you know, hiking all the time. I was in the snow all the time. And things just felt easier. It felt super comfortable to be out there, you know, in the elements. And I just, yeah, got really um, overconfident and complacent with this one. I like this Hike is under a communication tower. I'm going to have cell service, you know, but I did make the mistake of uh, deviating from my original plan by checking out that lake that was not supposed to be part of the plan. And then all of those things that I had, you know, forgotten to bring. Um, and then there's been some, you know, discussion and some thought about whether or not hiking alone, you know, is, is a good idea. Is that discussion on, on your end like are you wondering if you should be hiking alone or is that well it mostly started it mostly started with my my husband and my friends that don't hike or climb you know they were really on me with you know why did you have to do this by yourself 
And it, originally I was supposed to go with two friends, but they had to bail at the last minute. And my husband mentioned something to me that morning. Um, like, who are you going with? And I said, well, I was supposed to go with so-and-so, but I'm just going to do this one on my own because she can't make it. And he kind of stopped and I knew he wanted to say something, but he didn't. <laughs> and then he's like, so where's your spot? I'm like, mm, I don't need it. I'm going to have my cell phone. Mistake number two. So he was, yeah, he was legit mad, which he had every right to be because he, you know, had those, had, you know, a thought to remind me to to bring it. And I just said no. So, I mean, you know, I definitely was way complacent on this one. Um, but I've also had to question it for myself, too. Um, it probably started when you know just because of my crazy schedule like people just aren't off on the same days that I'm off and so I started hiking by myself and I got so used to hiking by myself setting my own pace you know just using the time to decompress and clear my head um so I did question it for a while but I I mean I I do it I still do it maybe for a hike this big you know with 5,000 foot gain 12 miles through the snow you know, I probably won't do alone again, but I mean, the shorter, more laid back hikes for sure. I'm already back out there hiking by myself, but I, I mean, my spot, my spot messenger is pretty much attached to me all the time. <laughs> well, that was a good learning. Yeah, definitely good learning experience. But I mean, another thing that there was a lot of psychological, emotional stuff that came along with it too. Um, so this story broke out in the news as well, because we hear stories of hikers going missing and not getting found all the time here in the Northwest. And when they found out, you know, that I was back home and everyone needed to know, you know, how that happened. So it broke out in the news and several stations and um, the local paper. And everyone says... You know, when these things break out, don't read the comments, don't read the comments. And I did. And man, um, people can be pretty harsh. And I expected some criticism. You know, a lot of people don't understand um, when people hike alone, especially women. You know, I got a lot of that, too. But I had to just, you know, realize and, and, and talking to other people that that also hike solo and are out in the mountains all the time, you know, I just had to be reminded that the way we refuel ourselves and the, the things that bring us joy and the things that we're passionate about, it's so individual, you know, people that don't do this aren't, aren't going to understand. Um, you know, they see it as super risky, but they don't maybe see how much planning goes into it. You know, watching the weather and studying the maps and making sure you're going on training hikes to make sure you're physically fit, you know, taking wilderness first aid so that you know, you know, how to deal with emergencies in the cold. And, you know, so to, to people that do this all the time and they're out there all the time, like that, the way they see that risk is different. It doesn't feel risky when you're planning for it, preparing. And, and then as far as I, I got criticism too about being a female you know out there by myself and from strangers oh yeah yeah strangers and also you know maybe acquaintances 
And so that made me mad (laughs) because, you know, what if this happened to a guy, you know, that was out there alone, also a doctor, same level of training and experience, you know, would he have gotten the same amount of criticism that I did? And, you know, that, that made me pretty mad, (laughs) you know, when I started having those, those thoughts. Um, And then I had to think and ask myself, well, what kind of example do I want to set for my own daughter? You know, I've got two boys and a girl, my daughter's my youngest. And do I want to, and then I realized that I was, you know, it's a lot of this very like society driven expectations on women, you know, kind of came up on, you know, she is the doctor and a mother of three and she's got all this responsibility and what is she doing out there um, hiking and climbing? You know, shouldn't she be at home? And, (laughs) oh yeah, oh yeah. So (laughs) yeah, I mean, that ticked me off pretty good. But then I, you know, I had to think about like, how would I explain this to my daughter? What is she doing out there recreating? (laughs) like do I want to perpetuate this whole you know women should just be at home and not out you know taking care of themselves and doing what they love or do I need to teach her that she can do anything a guy can do and society's expectations are never going to be as important as the dreams and goals that she sets for herself you know and and so yeah I mean there was it just there were so many issues that that had to be worked through emotionally for me after this whole ordeal. Like I'm a pretty private person and then to suddenly be in the news and criticized and kind of shamed for this, you know, was pretty heavy. But, you know, the people that that get it, that do it, the some of the search and rescue guys have reached out to me afterwards and have been such a huge part of also the recovery piece. Um, you know, I had kind of brought up to one of them what I was going through and all these different thoughts I was having and just feeling kind of just bad about the whole thing. And, and he shared something with me that really, really stuck with me and helped me. And, um, his name's Jason, Jason Paul DeVries. And he sent me this little blurb as a response to when I was struggling. And he said, Um, And as for the criticism you may face, I would offer to you that it's easy for those who don't understand to criticize. It's easy for those who don't experience things the way we do to question. And while we should appreciate and respect the value in in their questions, we should also hold fast to the value in our living life to the fullest, according to what that means to each of us. And that was huge for me. Hmm. What a nice guy. So so I feel like... um... I feel like you got a lot physically out of that day. Um, you got mm-hmm. a lot of emotion out of that day and you've been pushed mentally um, just from dealing with all these, you know, these judgmental comments on social media and um, what that's, you know, the effect that that has had on you and your family and how have you been dealing with that? I've, well, my husband and I have done a lot of talking it out, you know, the things that he needs from me in our relationship and what I need from him. You know, he thought I was 
you know, he thought it was dead. And, you know, I think he was angry with me that maybe I wasn't thinking about, you know, the life we've built together and our kids and being there for kids. But, you know, that went back to me viewing this risk is not all that. It didn't wasn't risky in my mind. You know, I had prepared for it. I knew where I was going. I, you know, had studied the maps. I had a timeline. Now, whether or not this was like selfish in other people's opinions, you know, when I think about someone being selfish, it's doing whatever you want with complete disregard for other people's needs. But that's not at all what I was doing. You know, I had this planned out. He knew where I was going to be. He knew when to expect me back. I mean, he, he knows I would never just like completely disregard our family. So, I mean, I think once he knew that and felt good about that and felt like he had a good understanding of what I needed as well for self-care and that I love being out in the mountains and I love hiking by myself and I love challenging myself. Um, we came to an understanding you know, as long as I'm carrying my spot, um, <laughs> yeah, he's going to be going back out there. <laughs> it's huge to be able to communicate about how you, how you can both best support each other um, and support right. that, you know, your three kids while, you know, having really good self-care. Um, right. That's a hard thing to do. It's a very delicate balance. I mean, I think a lot of working moms and parents in general just have a hard time with it, balancing busy work life and home life and also self-care and pursuing your goals. Like it's just like a lot of people have a hard time figuring that out. And I'm super lucky to have this partner that gets it. I mean, he's not a climber. He He's afraid of heights, has no desire to be out there in the cold. Um, but he, he gets it. He's like, I get it. You know, it makes you feel good, makes you, you know, feel like you've really accomplished something. And yeah, you love it. You get that. So he, yeah, he's been super supportive. Um, um, so yeah, it's been a little over four months and I've already summited hood and unicorns. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I did that two weeks ago. Well, you're alive. Um, you yes. had a very successful rescue and you learned from, yeah. you know, the few mistakes that you did make. Right, right. Just getting complacent, not having the GPS tracker and my spot messenger, having extra battery for my phone, an emergency uh, shelter, bivy, emergency blanket, you know, that would have been good. I mean, none of us never, you know, none of us ever planned to go out there and get hurt. Leslie wanted to thank Hood River Crag Rats, 204th Rescue Squadron, Washington County Search and Rescue, Pacific Northwest Search and Rescue, and Portland Mountain Rescue. Thank you to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor and for donating a helmet to one of the Sharp End listeners. And that lucky winner from the August episode is Matt Bayer. He says, you're never too cool to wear a helmet. And his favorite climbing area is in the Keene Valley region of the Adirondacks. So congratulations to you, Matt. Now to enter to win for this next giveaway, head over to my Instagram page, find the thumbnail that matches this episode, tag three friends that you think might love the podcast, like Mammut North America and the American Alpine Club, and then finally comment with your favorite Sharp End episode to date. 
I'll do the drawing on September 15th, so good luck. Thank you to the Colorado Art Bound School and Sunto for the additional support. The Colorado Art Bound School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 55 years. They offer wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and Ecuador. Courses range in 8 to 81 days in length for ages 12 plus and include everything from backpacking, mountaineering, canyoneering, rafting, and rock climbing. So visit cobs.org to plan your next adventure. When you have your mind set on a certain goal or adventure, you want to make sure your watch can also go the distance. With up to 120 hours of continuous exercise tracking, the Sunto 9 is built to last just like you. It is also tested tough through hundreds of hours of military-grade testing and built with durability in mind. So join the American Alpine Club today for an exclusive discount on the Sunto 9. Remember, play hard and be smart.